Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the last day of July 2012, and this is David Dubelbeis. David, did I say that correctly? Wonderful. You get bonus points for sure. It usually takes uh, a few times. A guy with the last name Hargadon is not allowed to be too bad, although I'm not sure I'm better than anybody else. Really delightful to have you on the show. This is kind of a retrospective. This is the kickoff for me of Connected Educator Month. I'm starting a day early. But I really wanted to talk to David about five years of educational social networking and more. So we're going to have some fun. Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. Coming up, uh, of course, Connected Educator Month starts tomorrow. I'm actually going to put a. Uh, I'm going to bring up a web page here so you can see all that's going on. Uh, Connected Educator Month is at connectededucatormonth.com, but that site is actually a little bit hard for me to read the activities. So for the first three days of activities, I you can scroll down here. I put them in what I hope is a more readable format. Incredible guests and panels. Uh, participating over the next three days. We have uh, Douglas Rushkoff speaking. We've got Chris Lehman, Deborah Meyer, Connie Yowell, um, and then on the panels, too many to mention, but an incredible lineup, probably 45 or 50 really wonderful folks that you're going to really enjoy learning from over the course of the next three days. And then, of course, the whole rest of the month, and I'm going to I'll put that link in here as well, which is connecteducator.org, I think. Oh, that's not it. That's so funny. I don't know that link. But someone will put it in the chat, and we'll be able to see the rest of the activities taking place during the month. And then on the 20th to the 24th, I'm hosting a worldwide virtual conference called Learning 2.0. And this is going to be a blast. This is really worth checking out. It's at learning20.com. And it is, again, another inclusive worldwide conference. So we're hoping that you will come and submit to present. And it's all of the things that we have been talking about in the show and more, how the internet and the web have impacted education, teaching, and learning. So uh, do look for that. It's a, sh it's a very short time till that conference, but that's because of uh, making it a part of Connected Educator Month. So you'll notice that we have an abbreviated schedule, but there's still a good amount of time to get a presentation proposal in. Don't forget the Future of Libraries Conference, October 3rd through 5th, and the Global Education Conference, November 12th to 16th. Coming up on the Future of Education, um, we've got a couple of reschedules, but uh, we also have some brand new material here. Uh, August 8th, we're going to have a Reforming the Ed Reform Dialogue Panel with Alfie Cohn, Gary Steger, Stephen Downs, and Howard Gardner. That should be really a lot of fun. Also new on this list are the Learning 2.0 keynotes. Uh, those will be that week of the 20th to the 24th. Julie Evans, Heidi Hayes-Jacobs, Sugata Mitra is coming on. Uh, Michelle Pekansky, Brock, Mark Prinsky, Audrey Waters, and Yong Zhao. I just couldn't ask for more fun. Anyway, those and lots more coming up on the future of education. Hopefully something 
information of interest to you. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3 format. Uh, we talked uh, to Michael Karnjanaparakorn. There's, there's another good name for you. He's the CEO of Skillshare. And that was a really delightful visit with him. I love his voice. And this is, uh, interestingly enough, teaching and learning outside of the institution. And it's worth finding out about Skillshare. Marcia Connor talked to us about social learning. David Preston, Jonathan Finkelstein, lots more there. Again, those are all recorded. Hopefully something that's valuable to you to listen to. Coming up on 300 shows, or maybe we've even passed it. OK, this is your chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, you should now see some icons. You're looking for the second one down, the star icon. Double click on that and click on the map. And then feel free to shout out in the chat. Let us know where you're participating from. Sometimes fun to know the time and the temperature. I can hear threatening thunder here in Park City, Utah. Australia, India, Lebanon, I think, right? Pakistan. Really delightful to have a worldwide audience. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, those of you who know Ning will may know the name Gina Bianchini. Gina was the CEO of Ning, and she's now started a new company called Mighty Bell. And Mighty Bell allows you to curate and have conversation around items. And I've created a Mighty Bell space for this conversation and put some items in that space. It's worth checking out. Please do sign up. Go in there. We'll try and uh, post links, articles, and other things related to this interview as time goes by and, and hopefully becomes a nice repository. So David, this is really fun for me. Y you and I got a chance to connect some months ago uh, and, and start this conversation. Um, I'm interested in when you started EFL Classroom 2.0. And uh, had you been a member of Classroom 2.0, and was it sort of a spin-off, or did you have a, your own sort of brilliant stroke of genius about the same time? Um, no, I can't take that much credit. Um, no strokes of genius, just a lot of hard work. So really the background is I had my, another social networking site before, um, but then I joined Classroom uh, 2.0. Wonderful. Um, and hopefully we'll discuss kind of the changes too. And you can kind of have a backdrop about those changes on Classroom 2.0 over the years. But um, uh, immediately saw the potential of Ning, um, went into the creators forum and saw all the other things that could be possible, considered all sorts of other options and um, thought Ning was the best um, way to go. And uh, EFL Classroom 2.0 just seemed to fit as, uh, and so I followed your lead. So for me, I feel like that was a really significant shift. It was a significant shift from blogging as being the primary tool that educators were, were, were having promoted to them for being a part of the conversation. 
it felt like Ming kind of, uh, in one fell swoop, really changed the landscape. Do you feel that same way? Do you feel like that was an important moment? Yeah, I really do. Um, you know, of course, we were doing social networking, but not with all these tools that Ning suddenly brought available to a wide audience. And, um, you know, they really played up the possibility, too, and got everybody excited, which was great at the time. So, yeah, you could say it was kind of like an Archimedean, um, you know, give me a lever and I can move the world kind of beginning time period. I certainly feel like Facebook has played this very interesting, significant role. Right now, Twitter for educators is playing a huge role, one that surprised me a little bit, but I think in part because it's um, it's so uh, sort of simple and non-constrained. But I do feel like, for me at least, Ning was a really significant moment. Um, so what do you think Ning got right? But what are the lessons, looking back on five years, what are the lessons for us in terms of what they did well? I think, I think um, they did a few things well. Um, you know, I'd been participating in, you know, forums and Yahoo forums uh, um, substantially in the 90s and into the 2000s. Um, so I knew all what, you know, forums could do, and I was thinking of starting my own forum, and I did start my own forum. And I went to Ning precisely because of this, they kind of got it that there was more to it than just the chatter, that you needed some content. You needed video, and video was coming on strong or had the potential anyways then, and we've now kind of almost realized it. Um, they got other things right in, in terms of um, um, really playing up um, and being enthusiastic promoters of the possibilities and making a quick process for educators to sign up students uh, and reaching out, I think, to the educational market. I think that was key. Um, they were one of the forerunners in, into reaching out into the educational market and not just, you know, the, um, you know, the, the people that want to talk about airplanes or the hobbyists and uh, special interests. Um, I also really think that they, they um, they created this whole kind of uh, pre-Facebook thing where you actually saw people more than the regular forms and you could have your own profile page and your own personality, kind of like MySpace but it was a little more serious and a little more formal and uh, so those things are what I feel they got right. I can go into what, what I think they, they got wrong but I'd like to hear your kind of view there, Steve, about uh, those comments. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's hold off for the, what, the missteps for a minute here. But uh, I, I want to drill down a couple of those. So um, I, is there an, there's an interesting lesson for me, and I wonder if, uh, you know, if, if you would feel the same way, that it wasn't a product designed for education. I feel like uh, Twitter, Evernote, Google Docs, that these products somehow answered kind of a human need for connecting in certain ways and that educators did a good job of taking them and, and seeing the potential and bringing them into education. But it's interesting to me that they weren't designed specifically for education. Do you think there's a lesson there? Um, yeah, I, definitely. 
I think there's a lesson there, um, but I don't think any of these things were, were originally made for education. Um, so it's easy in retrospect to look back on that and say, well, it wasn't made for education, but it's kind of 2020 hindsight in a way. Um, and yeah, I do think they missed the boat in terms of adopting things that educators could do, um, like or could use, like wikis and uh, some other kind of really um, communicative uh, tools that educators would use. Well, it's interesting because I actually was working for Ning at that time. So Classroom 2.0 came out. Uh, I called Gina Bianchini and said, I think that you should hire me to talk about this platform in education. And she did a, she was very thoughtful about it because I said, I need to be able to represent the product to the audience, but also the audience to the product. So I was on a lot of the discussions about COPPA and the age limitations and whether or not there should be a wiki. And, you know, intriguingly, they couldn't find revenue potential there. They wanted to serve education, but they couldn't find revenue potential. So they, they didn't go those places, which meant in some ways the product was streamlined. And I'm wondering if, that, if that's also a part of what they did right. The product was somewhat structured. You could do creativity, but it was creativity within boundaries. And I thought back and thought, that's kind of a nice model or way of thinking about how these products produce creativity for us. They, they allow us a certain amount of creativity, but within a structure. Was that part of the appeal for you? Um, actually, the opposite, I would say. Um, I felt the limitations were really um, um, too much for myself, but I can, I can see that point being valid for your regular classroom teacher that just wants to have a classroom. Um, but I felt really constrained by a lot of things that, that were developed by third parties and then taken away, or things I developed myself and, and added in, and then they just kind of closed the door. Um, Matter-of-factly, um, you know, taking away a lot of hard work that had been done. But uh, yeah, I do see uh, a lot of educators did appreciate this kind of uh, Lego-type approach to it, if, if we could put it that way. Um, and so, you know, they, they did adopt it and get enthusiastic. And many educators became, uh, you know, quite strong promoters. And I'm sure you know lots of them um, at the time. So I, I'm interested also in the degree to which uh, Ning and other programs kind of reminded us of the importance of social and learning. So uh, Ning put your photograph next to every contribution you made. Do you think that made a difference? Do you think there w there's a little bit of an ego factor there? Oh, really? I, I, I do think that that's, that was crucial. This whole notion of, um, you know, the person comes first, and then the content and the conversation comes after it. Um, unfortunately, you know, that's just how it is with these wide communities, and people want to be where people are. And now we see it as, as commonplace, you know, with Facebook. But at the time, um, you didn't have many main pages of social networks parading lots of faces of people and um, highlighting members and, and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, of course, Ning's developed in that way. They've had, they also had a map. Um, and they really popularized using, you know, members' maps and uh, a real focus on the person. So 
there were some other things that really made a difference for me. One was I had almost zero administrative responsibility. Right? So Ning changed how they've done the memberships. Part of it was I didn't have to be troubleshooting the product. I had used Drupal before. I had uh, looked at Joomla. I had looked at um, you know a number of open source programs. And part of what Ning did was it really removed a lot of that administrative weight, uh, which I think led to an enormous amount of adoption. It also put all the tools in one place with a single sign-on. And then maybe even most importantly, it provided for conversation where you didn't have to create a five-paragraph essay. You know, unlike the blog, you could come on and ask a one-sentence question, and people could give one-sentence responses. And, and that was so much less daunting than the idea of blogging. Yeah, right. And it you know foreshadowed Twitter in, in that aspect. Um, and it created lots more interaction. I, I really like the internal email system that Ning developed too, um, and its levels of privacy there. Um, I don't think they've adopted they adopted a, a clear kind of hierarchy of privacy within it. Um, your point about um, getting up and going with Ning quickly, I think, is is well taken, um, and that's what educators really want. They you know they don't want to deal with all the the administrative stuff or the um, webmastering type of things that they would do in a normal community if they put up something with Drupal or we all know about Moodle and the headaches of, of doing that. And um, So yeah, they did get that right. Right, I was, I was searching for uh, the name ELG and, and didn't come up with it in time. But uh, and you've also reminded me that one of the incredibly interesting functions of a Ning network is that it serves as an email blaster. And a lot of people um, don't realize just how valuable that is. Okay, so we can stop singing the praises for a minute here. And tell me what missteps you think Ning made. I, the, there was the huge debacle with the converting to, to um, the subscription basis for me. What 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 really got you? Um, yeah, essentially I think it boils down to that. That um, what they number one, they you know, they they reneged on their terms of service. Um, I made a blog post a lot of years ago about Ning in the back of my mind, but it was the Ten Commandments of Social Networks, kind of the ten things you have to do. Um, to be successful, and one of them is, um, you know, what you give somebody, you don't take it away. Um, so you grandfather, and I think by not grandfathering, um, which is standard practice in in web development, they really hurt a lot of people and, and made a lot of bad feelings, and that that really destroyed the larger community at Ning. Um, they also kind of their pricing structure, you shouldn't have a pricing structure from like basic silver, gold, premium, or whatever, because um, and many sites, or most smart sites, have gone away from that model. Um, you should allow them to full use of the product, but the limitations should be based on um, extra functionality, not extra functionality, limitations should be based on you know, the numbers. But all of a sudden, they just gave these bare naked sites, uh, social networking sites, that teachers really couldn't do too much with. And 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 that um, just wasn't wasn't a viable option. Um, and 
most schools could not afford, you know, the other options that Ning offered. It does feel like kind of a tragedy. There was this product that was just a, making such incredible impact on education. And then even with the Pearson sort of mini networks for free, they were constrained in such a way that it really felt like they, that we lost something of significance. Were there things that Ning and social educational social networking started to teach us or re-teach us about teaching and learning? Uh, yeah, I do think so. Um, they helped us kind of uh, map out um, how we can connect together around a subject or a talk or a group. Um, that was always there in, in these older kind of forms. But um, we were able to, with Ning, you know, pull in so many things from all over the place. I call it, you know, they, they were at the tip and the very start of this whole thing of crowd learning where, you know, we don't need a teacher. We can just get the content and get excited and, and learn on that level. Um, not, not a lot of structure. It wasn't kind of like a, a school or that kind of environment, but it was where people who were enthusiastic about ideas and things, um, even technology like us, could talk about it and, and really roll with it. And, um, and then they started, you know, allowing us to bring in a lot more content easily and, and easier and easier. Um, even So nowadays, it's very easy to pull in content and have the world right there at your community, which is really great. You know, it seemed, I, I call this peer professional development. It seemed like part of what Ning did is it, it helped us to see the incredible potential for expanding what had been conversations in the hallways of physical conferences into a much more engaged worldwide opportunity for peer professional development. It also felt like it really rewarded the proactive individual. That you didn't necessarily need an invitation, say, or to get accepted to speak somewhere. You could, if you were interested in something, you could start it. And even if that meant only 10 people came, that you got value from those 10 people being together. Yeah, for sure. Um, and lots of people got enthusiastic on that level. Um, unfortunately, it takes a lot of hard work to maintain a social network. And I, and I would crawl through Ning sometimes and just see, you know, all the tombstones. Um, but I guess that's just the nature of the beast, um, of, of how, you know, things come and go and people try out things. And I think that's great um, that we can have such an open system, um, you know, allowing that. Um, but I really think that um, Ning works, but it costs money. And I, I think one of the failings was it was always set up as a for-profit system. Um, Right now I'm involved with English Central and one of the things I like about, you know, being part of this this website that's transforming, you know, video-based learning at English Central is the fact that, you know, we do have deep pocketbooks and they're in it for a long time. So, you know, they're not just trying to, to, to get it up to stuff and sell it to Pearson um, or, you know, just try to monetize it as quickly as possible. And I think education really needs that. And that's always been kind of the argument for government's role in education. But um, we really need investors that are there for the long term. Um, I don't, you know, I'm really suspicious of this, especially with social networks who enter education um, and, and 
just climb on the bandwagon or LMSs nowadays is the hot thing. Build one and then sell it off. And uh, I think we got to raise our voices as teachers and be really suspicious about joining in on anything early on because, um, like Ning, the rug could be pulled from under you after you've built so much and, and invested with so much time with people. I've been wondering why there's been directed chat to the moderators, and I apologize. I don't know how it happened, but the chat turned off in the main room, and it is back on now, so you can you can uh, do that. So, David, I'm sorry I got distracted for the last 30 seconds. Can I beg you to repeat it? Yeah, sure. I, I was just thinking back over the lesson of Ning, and I think it applies to a lot of social networks, and this whole buyer beware on the part of social networks participating in education. Um, a lot of investors are investing in social networking still, um, even with you know the ascendancy of Facebook um, and even and LMSs to a large degree. But um, you know they're they're doing it for a short-term gain of two or three years, build something, get some membership, and then sell it off, and uh, you know let the whales eat the minnows type of thing. And I don't think we that's a value proposition for education. And I really think you know we have to talk and and make a lot more awareness about this sort of thing that's happening uh, with large companies um, investing uh, in these things without any kind of um, guidelines uh, in terms of you know education. I, I don't I don't really buy into the capitalist uh, full capitalist approach to you know setting up a, these huge social networks. Well, so one of the uh, sort of interesting pieces on the other side of that is that some of the networks that have been set up that were not for profit or were government funded, um, like me.edu.au in Australia, ended up closing. Do, do we have a good example of a non-commercial social network that has sort of stayed the course and ended up being really helpful to educators? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think we're still kind of in the infancy for, for these kind of developments, but um, I, I mean, you, you might consider some of the open source stuff uh, out there, but um, not enough adoption really that um, would make it a success. And I think one of the things that haven't made them successes are um, really governments the whole trend with government investment in education has been towards you know letting the private world do it and, and we fund it through the back end. Um, so that's been basically the model. And also that governments, you know, they just can't react and, and um, keep up with the, the innovation. Um, so yeah, there are weaknesses to the other side of things. So another possible explanation is occurring to me, and that is that uh, typically those systems that have been created have not been a platform, um, but have actually been an implementation of a specific view of how to use the platform. So whereas ELG is a platform, and maybe with some government assistance, or, well, or something like you know the Open University or some a grant or a foundation. Uh, the building up of a platform likening where you can then be creative with the platform has not really been done. Educator.me.edu.au, Learn Central, you know, I'm sure there are other examples. 
these were specific implementations of a platform, and so maybe there's a lesson there. Yeah, I agree, and and also that um, you know social networks cross borders, and I think the the point to take there is that um, why do why would a government invest in something that would be adopted and used um, you know all around the world? I'm sure there's a way around that, but um, that could be a factor too. Sorry, I had Steve, my yeah, it feels like this is a very interesting moment, right? So we've had name, we've had Facebook, uh, we've got Twitter, we've got adoption of commercial platforms. We have, uh, you know, educators connecting with each other in significant ways, in significant enough ways that the U.S. Department of Ed is holding a Connected Educator Month, right? That's a big deal. So, in fact, I'm going to, I meant to uh, actually put the link up for that, and so let me do so here because um, I couldn't get it earlier. Okay, and, and I, I just wanted to mention that, um, you know, one of the things Ning, I think, really um, did well initially and started this whole movement about um, linking up classrooms and places around the world. Um, you know, I was right in the mix of that, which was great. I, I started one of my own projects, Project Peace. Um, it's still a Ning network. Um, and essentially, uh, classes from all around the world made videos and used my materials to make videos and put them up. And we had, all, you know, all these hundreds of videos of these classrooms, which was really cool. But I saw that happening on all sorts of levels with these communities, um, which uh, I don't see happening so much over Facebook. It's, it tends to go underground. And, that, and that's one of the limitations I find with Facebook, um, that it, it really um, doesn't uh, allow for a lot of project development. Although there are some creating their private pages and linking classrooms, um, that is happening. So for Ning's faults, it, it did give you ownership, right? It gave you an incentive because you were creating something that would live on. In many ways, um, you were still giving a gift to the community, but it uh, you had some control over it and ownership, which I don't feel like you have with Facebook. Yeah, definitely, and and that's one of the problems with uh, Facebook that that I see. Um, this whole sense of um, not having control and ownership of your not just personal information, but you know everything else that revolves around what you do. Um, I think, you know, I get asked that question all the time about Facebook. It seems one of the first things that comes up in any conversation, maybe since Facebook launched the IPO or whatnot, but, um, you know, how long will it last? Will it dominate everything? Will Facebook rule the world and uh, et cetera? Will we continue on Facebook when we die? What's going to happen? Um, I really think um, social networks are, you know, creatures of life, and they obey the laws of thermodynamics. And one of them is entropy, and things come and go, and, and rather quickly too. So, you know, I'm predicting the demise of Facebook right here on your on your little talk. Um, I see a, you know, a slow decline in a couple years, and I really see a lot of our social networking being done through our hardware and our machine. Uh, 
So when you buy a machine, uh, you buy a new laptop, you're going to be able to put up your page right away, and we'll be communicating machine to machine rather than through this uh, through the web and having others control um, our information. So when I throw out my laptop, you know, I throw out who I am essentially. Um, I'm really being kind of uh, general here, but um, I see that as a development and. Um, a lot of the social networks created in the web were created because we didn't have the infrastructure for machines to communicate with each other, but um, that will happen. Interesting. Okay, so uh, yeah, let's go back to that if we can um, once we get through some of the other questions I have for you. So if somebody's interested in being the creator or the initiator of a social networking uh, platform or implementation, uh, what advice do you have for somebody who's starting a name or some other kind of a, a network for uh, a group of educators? What, what, do you, what do you feel that you've learned? Yeah, um, big question. There's, I could talk on it for hours, but I'll try to be simple. But like a lot of questions about education, and I'm sure you know, you've, you get this too, it, it's really hard to answer in generalities because it really depends on, on what your use is. A social network can be used for so many different things and, and that should drive it. Um, you know, we, we label these technically as what are the affordances? Um, what qualities does it have to have in order you, for you to perform a result or an action? Um, but I think uh, number one, you really need to um, have a strong person there that's going to get up and, and really be committed to the network and driving it and communicating with others, answering others' questions. Um, that's just the, really the nature of the beast. Um, number two, you, you really need to have levels of uh, privacy um, depending on you know what you're trying to do with your social network, but that's always you know something you have to think about strongly, and um, it's something you know that that just has to be thought of in advance. Um, certain users will want certain different levels of privacy on the social network. Um, another thing I, I've learned is um, be positive. Um, never. You know, be spiteful or reply in you know in a negative fashion. Um, I've learned ignore a lot of um, the the renegades and the people trying to destroy the network. I'm sure you've found that too. Um, the best tool a creator has is to to, to just ignore uh, negativity, and because you know you'll only inflame it. Um, I think you you just have to find the right platform too. Talk to others. Join a community. There's a lot of communities online for creators of social networks, um, and do your homework. Um, just, I, I think you should get it up. And I'm a real big promoter of the 37 Signals kind of motto: make it real. That's one of the the, the great things about technology is this ability to muck about. But at the same time, invest your own knowledge into it and um, figuring out the right path and the right things to do. And uh, don't do too much. I think um, one thing I learned is I tried to do everything, and and that's almost like doing nothing. I tried to build this and put in this and have so much, and nobody could find anything. So I really had to. to you were really great at that. I think at Classroom 2.0, 
um, maybe by intention or, or maybe just the way it was, but it was a really simple kind of thing. You had your blog, your form, and uh, your notifications really, and, and, and it, it seemed to, to work well. Yeah, yeah, well, um, so those, those are a few things, anyway. We'll get to the clutter because I feel like uh, I'm, oh, I'm very open to that particular criticism right now. But I want to piggyback on a couple things you said. So, so the phrase I use for that ignoring is benign neglect. Um, but I also found that it was really valuable for me to model patients. And so uh, I felt like if I would go the extra mile to treat somebody kindly who was misunderstanding or you know, potentially saying things that sounded worse than they were actually feeling. That, that a lot of my role was just to model the respectfulness of the conversation. Yeah, you, you said what I really wanted to say. I, I mean, um, you set the tone, and I think everybody naturally, as social creatures, follows that tone and and falls into place. So I, I really think. Um, you can avoid a lot of problems just by setting that proper tone yourself and uh, letting um, letting it happen that way rather than you know telling people how to behave. Yeah, I also found that um, in, in part because I had been hired by Ning, and so I had a financial incentive now to promote the capabilities of the product. My initial inclination was to keep everybody in my network. But as a promoter of the product, then my job was to encourage people to start new networks. And in that process, I discovered the value of that generosity of supporting others. And that would be a lesson for me, which is um, giving, allowing others to get uh, recognition uh, and being willing to uh, promote others and their good works. Yeah, ex excellent point. And I learned that along the way, too, this whole you know, I started this member of the month, and and it was incredible how people banded together through this sense of um, just promoting valuable members. I I should have done more about allowing others to administrate the network and whatnot, but um, and I think there were people out there willing to, but it it just never happened for my part. I know Classroom 2.0 did very successfully. Um, and I really wish you know I would have done that. And so that's another tip: um, don't do it all yourself. You know, I actually don't think I'm a good example there. I think that uh, Jim Burke with English Companion Ning has been really proactive in spreading that work and, and deserves um, kudos for that. Um, I also found that for me, it was important to extend beyond the network. So for me, it was webinars. So that was another way of people connecting uh, beyond the network. Uh, have you seen, have you done or seen other ways of connecting outside of the network that you feel add value to the relationship people have in the network? Well, yeah, I mean, the obvious ones nowadays are, are just, you know, having a uh, presence on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and whatnot. Um, but I think you mean something a little, you know, deeper and, and you know, more bent towards learning. Um, other examples that you know that I could that I've done myself, I, I just have focused on content. So I have large repositories of content for teachers that they can get off the network. Um, like yourself, uh, wikis are a great thing, an example. Um, um, slide share and slide you know presentations like that are also good. Um, 
I've tried to blend uh, several communities on top of my own community, and it never seemed to work because um, there were limitations to Ning's groups, and I was really frustrated. And I tried to break off and and do something like that, but it never really, you know, um, never really happened. Yeah. So one final thought you've given me is that um, it's really helped me to think of um, doing something like this as, as being a gift, that you're giving a gift to the web, to other users, and that the web rewards that act of generosity. So before thinking of, the, of what you're going to get, ultimately for me it's about thinking about what I can give, and then that builds momentum around whatever the project is. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it's this old sense of uh, an educator, um, education or teacher as a vocation rather than a profession um, that, that you give something. Um, I don't consider myself a teacher. I teach. I train teachers. Um, you know, that's my day job and I do a lot of other things, but I really consider myself and, and if I had to label myself, uh, I, I label myself a curator. I'm great at, at putting things in the buckets and um, dividing them up and um, sending them to the right people and my head's just full of the right tools and the right places and assisting people in that curative sense like a librarian uh, used to. Um, I'll also note that you know one of the one of the things a, a social network does is for an educator is really de helps deal with the loneliness of the classroom. Um, we don't. I always tell my new teachers, you know, one of my first on on our first day of class, they're all eager. They're going to become teachers in eight months, and I really tell them in a solemn voice, you know, the hard knocks of teaching. And one is teaching's damn lonely. You know, it's the loneliest thing when there's tons of people around. But I, I do think social networks kind of um, help teachers deal with that aspect of loneliness, um, being alone in their classroom um, even though they're with their students. Yeah, I often uh, hear that referred to as reducing isolation. And I, uh, I like what you said and, and that phrase as well. Um, OK, so we've talked about kind of the things that Ning did well, the impact that they made. We've talked about potential missteps and, and you know, sort of maybe where we could think about going from the future. We've talked about what we may have learned from Ning and these social sites about teaching and learning. Uh, tell me what you see as being the potentially valuable parallels between the student world and the teacher world. And uh, how do we, what, what kind of lessons do we take from what we saw educators doing to what students could be doing? Or what kind of lessons can we take from student use of social media to educators? Yeah, that, that's really my area of interest um, in this new kind of paradigm of learning, you know, where it's learning not teaching. And I really, you know, on my blog, I blog a lot about this um, notion of self-directed learning. I mentioned the word crowd learning, where people can come together and learn constructivistly um, as a group. Um, that's the you know the main uh, the main um, strength of social network that uh, the teacher can sort of be in the background. Um, Sugata Mitra, who you, who you'll be uh, interviewing, 
he called that minimally, minimally invasive teaching, MIT, um, not the real MIT. But, um, and it's kind of a neat idea that technology kind of allows the teacher to set up the environment and then the students to kind of you know, interact with the material freely and freshly. Um, and really, um, it, it's really kind of a disruptive thing right now in ELT to borrow. Um, what's his name, Christensen's word for it. And, and I think it's um, a great thing, but I, I don't think it's a panacea. I think that you know, there's, there's still um, time where we have to follow the self-directed learning path. And um, I read on your blog uh, about uh, Chris Anderson, a guy I love from TED, and he, he talks about this idea of um, social networks allow us to tailor the learning, or not just social networks, but um, technology and online learning allow us to tailor the learning experience to each individual. It's a kind of differentiated um, instruction gone wild that that possibility exists. You know, as a teacher, it's really hard to do that in the classroom. But you can do that on a social network and online, and I think that's uh, really important. So Howard Rheingold uses the phrase pedagogy, which I really like as a way of describing uh, the learning that takes place uh, from our peers. Um, I'm also really intrigued by the shift in agency to the learner's agent. Uh, in the case of uh, what we've seen in the last five years is the teachers becoming agents to their own professional development. It feels to me like there's a great lesson there in terms of students becoming agents or actors or making the choices and decisions about their own education. Would you agree with that? Oh, especially in, in the realm of teachers themselves. I, I mean, teachers are incredibly, 99% um, of the teachers out there are really, um, are really the type of individuals that um, really want to do a great job. And they really want the knowledge to, to get them to do the best in the classroom. And I see that day in and day out. And, and these social networking communities like my own and, and so many others really allow teachers to take control of, of their own learning. And um, sure, it's great to go to a conference. And sure, it's great to listen to X, Y, and Z lecture or take this um, extra course. But I think when we participate in our learning from the point of view of enacting our tacit knowledge. I'm a big fan of Pogliani, Michael Pogliani, who, who wrote in the 60s a lot about this notion of tacit knowledge, this knowledge we can't measure, but which benefits us and which each individual has. Um, it's not very well measured or measured at all by educational systems. And um, that's, that's their growth. That's what we talk about when we see people grow on these social networks. And so especially in the realm of um, teachers who are really active agents in and of themselves, um, they really prosper through social networking. Um, students, um, you have to do it right. It just doesn't happen in and of itself. And um, I mean, that would be another talk it, it, um, on its own. OK, so we have about 10 minutes. What I'd love to do is to address some of the questions that have come up in the chat. And I know that if you've asked the question and we missed it, that you probably felt like we ignored it. We didn't, but it's just hard to follow that chat. 
So if you had a question that didn't get answered, would you uh, please post it again? Uh, or feel free to raise your hand. That's the third icon over in the participant box. And we'll give you the microphone, or you can put the lesson in, I'm sorry, the question in the chat. So Karima, I'm going to give you microphone privileges. If your mic uh, works, all you have to do is click on the talk button. And let's see here, audio. Okay, so you should have audio privileges now, Karima. So feel free to click on talk and let's see if we can hear you. So Karima, we're not getting uh, audio from you, but if you go ahead and turn your mic off and put your question in the chat, and uh, we'd love to have David answer that. Okay, so Benjamin asks, how can we promote students to be aware of their digital footprint? Wow, um, I sound so trite, but great question, of course. Um, I really think that, um, you know, modeling different scenarios would be great. Um, I, I, I like um, having students in class um, do live Twitter chats and things like that. And then us looking at their material of what they've done um, and discussing it from the, the perspective of their own footprint. Um, I really think um, the teacher can't be really kind of um, all-knowing and kind of moralistic about this sort of thing. I think it's something that you, you can do through role plays and scenarios online um, in, in private environments and set it up and, and really trick the students. Um, there was a great teacher that did something like that too and, and I can't remember it for the life of me right now. Um, but creating these actual simulations are, are the best way to teach them, you know, how, how to regulate and be aware of their, their footprint and, and to think twice and, and to really be kind of aware about things. I, this to me is one of the great ironies of our current time, which is it feels like the best way to help students become aware of their digital footprint and the value or dangers will be for the teachers to model that. So for educators to be actively showing the pursuit of a passion online, the things that they care about or interested in, contributions to networks. Um, but in fact, even in some cases like New York, there are legal restrictions against this. But I also think more important than the legal restrictions are just teachers being nervous about their own participation. But it feels like modeling is the number one key here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes back to good teaching. Good teaching is a teacher showing passion for the subject. Um, and, and you can't put a price on that. Um, they could teach as poorly as anybody, but if this, they exuded this passion, um, learning would happen with the students. Um, don't get me started with the United States and their kind of backwards protectionistic, uh, moralistic kind of view of uh, there's an there's a evil around every corner. Um, in Canada, we've started to move away from that regarding social media and networking, which is great. Um, two years ago, we had a big advisory from where I teach. You know, Facebook was off guard and no teachers could ever show their profile. And now we're starting to encourage educators to do that. So I think the United States might see that same uh, same kind of curve, I, I hope. I, I'm intrigued because if we think that it's valuable for students to have an online 
resume or a digital profile, then of course it, the same would be true for teachers. If we think it's valuable for a student to have an authentic audience and to get feedback from others, of course the same would be true for teachers, right? But I, my guess is it's a little bit scary. It's easier to think about telling someone else to do it than it is to do it for ourselves. But, but that would seem to me to be sort of the gold mine. Okay, so the question that Karima wanted to ask is, can we explain the concept of pedagogy? And I'll take that one, David, just because I brought it up, and then you can add if you have any more understanding. But, but this would be, I think, what would describe the children in India learning to use the computer from each other with a, just a kiosk there rather than a teacher teaching them. Um, it would be any instance in which the group together learns something without a defined instructor. And I actually think the technical term is paragogy, P-A-R-A, but uh, Howard Rheingold calls it peeragogy to remind us of peers. Would you add anything to that, David, or correct me? Yeah, no, um, exactly. And I, I think it, it's very, it's, it's taking a naturalistic kind of approach to education and moving the teacher out and away and getting students to solve problems. And so question-based um, curriculum is, is also kind of wrapped into that, I think, in the role of the teacher. But I mean, pedagogy goes, e pedagogy goes even further as just presenting students with a situation and seeing what, where they go with it and not directing them even in the, even in the minutest sort of way. So that would certainly be the case in some of these videos I've seen of really superb math classes where the students are given a problem and then they're in groups and they go up to the board and they're trying to figure it out together and the teacher just sort of allows them to go through the process of discovery themselves. I want to ask a little bit about uh, language learning because it feels as though inherent in language learning is part of a level of participation that may not often be in other uh, subject matters. Are there things that we could be learning from language learning that we're not? Yeah, I, I think you know that um, language learning could um, use a lot more from education. Um, we're in in general, professors and and those uh, who are training teachers are not quite so aware, and we come from this applied linguistics background that's not really trained in pedagogy or education. But the, the, the converse is that education can, you know, take from language teaching this whole concept of we've had for a long time in, in the profession this focus on task-based learning, um, that it's a proper way for um, learners to learn through a task and, and to be driven through a task. Um, also, you know, this whole idea of um, uh, the Vygotskyan sort of social learning concept is very strong in language learning. Um, so I, th I think we could take a lot of things from language learning. Also, the role of repetition in language learning. Um, I think it's, it's very devalued in regular education. Um, and, and I think we've got to slow down. I, I tell my teachers all the time, slow down more. Um, you know, that we just assume too much and we teach too fast, and you know how education is these days. Are there topics, David, that we didn't cover tonight that you were hoping that I would ask you about now that you have all of four minutes to respond? 
But um, I, I, I've been trying to chat, but I can't chat. Otherwise, um, you know, I, I'm this multitasker. But um, what I'd like to ask you is, um, is there one person you really have admired out there for their kind of level of creativity um, regarding how they use technology and uh, education? Who, who, who would you really put foremost? So I'm really glad you asked that question because I'm actually, um, I feel like the role I play in this whole picture is bringing people together to share with each other. So my virtual conferences like the Learning 2.0 conference coming up and the Global Education Conference and the Future of Libraries, those are places where I bring hundreds of practitioners together. And, and I'm going to answer by saying that I, I really respect all of them. Um, and I worry a little bit about elitism. Uh, and so, um, I mean, I know that you know, it's very easy to say, look at someone like Will Richardson. And, but the difficulty with that is that that then sometimes sets a sort of an unattainable level. And I think uh, someone like Ann Merchant, who is a teacher in a rural school in Australia, a very small school, teaches accounting, who brings people in through Skype and other tools, brings the world into a classroom is as much of a hero and maybe even more identifiable for someone, easier for someone to identify with, than sort of the larger picture. So you know, I'm, this is a non-answer to your question, right? But I think it's the hundreds to thousands of teachers who are doing this work and showcasing it um, more than specific individuals. Oh, I agree. We, you know, we all are the heroes, definitely. Um, I see a lot of the people out there, right, are attending this chat here. I see Ayat from Egypt, who I I met. She read one of my uh, one of the things in one of my books, and wrote me like all excitedly because I was writing about the Egyptian Revolution and its meaning for education. So um, yeah, um, but I was just trying to see. I think we all have this kind of personal kind of uh, connection to somebody that really inspires us. Uh, myself, there's a, there's a guy, I don't know if you've ever followed uh, too much of him, Jonathan Harris. Um, he's not really in education, but he does marvelous things um, to bring people together th through these artistic projects on the web, um, number27.org. Um, so he, he's really inspired me about just mucking about with technology and 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 uh, really stretching out and being seeing the power of it. Okay, good. <laughs> That's a much more concrete answer than I gave. Um, you know, I'll say that my personal hero, one of my personal heroes, is Tim O'Reilly, uh, because I feel like Tim has has really done a really great job of, in a very open way, producing um, opportunities for teaching and learning. Hey, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, as a courtesy, we always finish on time. And I've got to tell you, this has been one of the most fun conversations I think I've ever had on the show. So that's a great credit to you. David, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, it's great to connect. Um, feel like uh, social networking brothers, definitely. <laughs> I'm glad. Coming up okay. on the future of education, the next three days are the kickoff for the uh, Connected Educator Month. Please do not miss that. Just an incredible array of 
people participating, go to connecteducators.org or Connected Educator Month to see what's happening over the next three days. And then coming up on the show, August 7th, Lee Rainey from Pew on his book, Network the Social Operating System, on the 8th, the Ed Reform Panel, and plenty, plenty more. David, your prince. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Loved having you here. We are going to, so David, go ahead and turn your video off. I'll turn mine off, and we'll stop the recording. Take care, everybody, and good night.